Carlyle versus Carbolic Smoke Ball Landmark Cases. Before Legal English Podcast is now in session. On today's docket, we discuss the landmark case of Carlyle versus Carbolic Smoke Ball. This 1893 English case concerns contracts in mere puffery in advertising. When is an offer a real offer that can be accepted? And how to accept an offer from an advertisement? Welcome to the Four Legal English Podcast. This is the show for lawyers, law students, and other professionals from all over the world who want to improve both their legal English and legal knowledge. In this episode, we'll discuss the landmark case of Carlyle versus Carbolic Smokeball. This is a famous case that is still used in contract law classes probably in every law school in the United States. I'm your host, Timothy Barrett. I was a practicing attorney in the United States. Now I teach law in Tbilisi, Georgia. This is episode 10 of the Four Legal English podcast. For the show notes, please go to the website, fourlegalenglish.com. Four is in the number four, legalenglish.com. In this episode, we discuss the landmark case of Carlo versus Carbolic Smokeball. This 1893 English case concerns contracts in mere puffery in advertising. When is an offer a real offer that can be accepted, and how to accept an offer from an advertisement? This is a classic contract law case that's still taught in American law schools today. If you want to read the case for yourself, go to our show notes, and I have a link to the full case, as well as a downloadable PDF of an abridged version of it. We use this case in our Elemental Legal English course, so students are able to download and we go through it in detail. This case comes from the Court of Appeal of England and Wales. It's from 1893. The case citation is 1QB or Queen's Bench 256. So if you had the books of the Queen's Bench, it would be in the first volume and turn to page 256. That's where you'd find it. Nowadays, of course, we probably do our legal research online, but the citation to the case is still very useful. This case is about an ad. Let me quote the ad from the case itself. 100-pound reward will be paid by the Carbolic Smokeball Company to any person who contracts the influenza after having used the ball three times daily for two weeks, according to the printed directions supplied with each ball. So this was an advertisement in the paper, and I think it was in several papers. Basically, the Carbolic Smokeball Company wanted to get people to trust their product and buy their product, use their product, so that they wouldn't get influenza or possibly other diseases they promised as well. So they're promising if you use this smoke ball that you won't get influenza, if you use it as directed, of course. So what is the issue in this case? Well, Carlyle used the smoke ball, and guess what? They still got influenza. So she contacted the company and said, hey, I want my reward. I used the product as you told me to, but I still got the influenza. Therefore, you owe me 100 pounds. Now, what is the issue in this case? As the court says, quote, we must first consider whether this was intended to be a promise at all or whether it was a mere puff, which meant nothing. Was it a mere puff? Close quote. So what is a puff? 
normally when we think of a puff, we think of just like a, a puff of air, like, like exhaling, ejecting some air from your lungs. What is a puff worth? Obviously nothing, right? A puff is just some air. Air is, although we need it to live, air is generally considered worthless. You're not going to pay for it. So if it is a mere puff, then the court is asking if it's nothing. Or was this a serious statement that a person reading that statement, reading that advertisement, would rely on? Would a reasonably prudent person rely on that statement? Or would they recognize that it's just a mere puff? Every advertiser says their product is great, yada, yada, yada. But there's nothing really to sink your teeth into about it. Now, one of the things that the judge looked at when considering this is that the advertisement also stated that they deposited $1,000 in a bank. Basically, the advertiser, the smokeball company, said that we're promising 100 pounds. And to show our sincerity, to show that we are serious about this, we've already deposited 1,000 pounds in a bank account, a special bank account just for this purpose. And they even list the bank that is being used. So that was very important to the judge. The judge said, quote, we are not inferring a promise. There is the promise, as plain as words can make it, close quote. So the court is saying that we're not inferring a promise. To infer is, is the same to imply. Basically, he's saying we're not reading between the lines. If we have an implied contract, that means that there is a contract, but it's not express. Express is when, ideally as lawyers, we want every contract to be express or every guarantee, every promise to be express, to be made clear in words. But sometimes there are promises or even contracts that may be implied or inferred. That is, we don't have the words that exactly explain it this way, but both parties understood it this way. For instance, maybe you have a problem with something and your, your coworker says, don't worry about it, I'll fix it, I'll handle that. Well, they expressly promise that they will fix it. But what if they say, oh, maybe we don't need to worry about that. Maybe everything will take care of itself. We'll talk about it later, you know, tomorrow. Well, they didn't expressly say anything, right? They didn't expressly say that they will take care of it or that, you know, the problem will be resolved, but they kind of implied it. Maybe, you know, they kind of hinted at it. In certain circumstances, because of what was said or what was indicated, maybe by actions instead of words, but certain things were implied. And if you're reading it or, or watching it, then you can infer certain, certain things, certain promises, or like I said, it could be even a whole contract. If a promise is inferred or implied, that doesn't mean it's not a valid promise. It could be a valid promise. We'd have to kind of analyze it. But the court is, is saying right from the beginning here, well, this is not an inferred promise. This is not an implied promise. This is a promise. There is a promise as plain as words can make it. So this is an expressed promise. Another issue, is it a real offer? Since it was not made to someone in particular. Now, normally when we think of an offer, we have one person says to another person, hey, I'll buy your car for you know, $2,000. We have the person making the offer, you have the person receiving the offer. But does it have to be that way? Do you need someone specifically to receive the offer? What if someone says, hey, will anyone here buy my car? Is that an offer? Because you talk to a group of people, maybe you talk to two people, maybe it's 22 people. 
You know, does it matter if they're talking to more than one person? And the court answers this by saying, yes, this is a real offer. It doesn't matter that it wasn't named to Mrs. Carlyle. The court said this was an offer to anyone who performs the conditions. How do you accept the offer? Perform the conditions. Use the carbolic smoke ball three times a day for two weeks and get influenza, then you'll get the reward. And the court is not trying to create new law here. It's citing other cases, talking about other advertisements and other rewards. So there's an interesting string of cases, not just about advertisements, but also about rewards. For instance, my dog is lost. If you bring back the dog, you know, I'll pay you 100 pounds. Or someone is missing. If you find her or have information, then we will reward you. Or we want to find out who killed this person. If you have information, then we will reward you. There's a long line of cases dealing with those types of offers, those types of uh, contracts. If you are enjoying today's episode, please subscribe, give us five stars, and a quick review. We're still a new podcast, so any review you can make would be great. And also, if you could share it with some of your friends or colleagues that might be interested in this as well, that would be great. You can go to our website, forlegalenglish.com, and check out our show notes there. Also, different blog articles and our available courses. If you're looking to improve your legal English, then check out either our Elemental Legal English course, which is a completely online, at-your-own-pace course, or perhaps you're interested in the conversational legal English. This is one-on-one tutoring with me, Timothy Barrett. If you want to enhance your speaking ability, your conversational skills, then check out this course. Since this is the 10th episode, we prepared a short survey about the podcast. If you go to forlegalenglish.com slash podcast survey, all one word, podcast survey, or just go to the main page, you'll be able to, to find it from there. That's four as in the number four, legalenglish.com. If you do find our podcast worthwhile, please take a couple of minutes and check out the survey. Tell us what you do like about it, what you'd like to hear more of, and if there's anything that you don't like, you'd like to hear less of, let us know. It would really help us out as we try to improve and grow the podcast. Again, that's forlegalenglish.com slash podcast survey. Another argument the, the court contends with is, Does acceptance have to be notified? Does the person who accepts the offer have to notify the carbolic smoke ball company? Now, normally, we accept an offer by notifying the offeror. Remember, the offeror is the person or the party that makes the offer. The offeree is the person or party that receives the offer. They might reject the offer. They might accept the offer. It doesn't matter. The offeree is the one who received the offer. Normally, an offer is accepted by notifying the offeror. Is this necessary? And if it is, did Mrs. Carlyle adequately notify the offeror? And the court really rejects this argument. Uh, He talks talks about one precedent case, Brogdon versus Metropolitan, which basically said, quote, if notice of acceptance is required, the person who makes the offer gets the notice of acceptance contemporaneously, with his notice of the performance of the condition, close quote, contemporaneously meaning at the same time. So according to that case, 
an offer E and say, I accept the offer and I've done it. You know, here, here's the proof. Give me my money. We don't need a break in time between the notifying acceptance and then doing the, the condition, whatever is required under the contract. The court then goes farther than Brogdon versus Metropolitan. The court says that because of the nature of this offer, the offer or the Carbolic Smokeball Company does not expect notification of acceptance. As long as the other party performs, they complete the conditions, then that's enough to complete the contract. Now, of course, Carbolic could have specified otherwise in the offer. They could have said, you know, had some fine print, if you want to accept this contract, you know, then have certain things that would, would specify how acceptance would occur, but it didn't. So according to the court, performance was sufficient for acceptance, or possibly acceptance isn't even required. But in this case, it doesn't really matter. Then another argument that the court addresses is consideration. Carbolic makes the argument that this is what they call nudum pactum, basically a, a naked agreement with no consideration. And of course, in common law, you need four elements to form a contract. Offer, acceptance, intention, and consideration. So if there's no consideration, there is no valid contract. But the judge rejects this argument. According to the judge's analysis, by advertising, the offeror is hoping to get trust from the public, from buyers of their product or potential buyers. And if they have that trust, then people will buy the product, thus benefiting the Carbolic Smokeball Company. So they are getting something from this advertisement, from this offer. The judge then goes on to look at kind of the other side, the detriment. What is the detriment to the offer E, the person who accepts the offer? And the judge makes it clear that certainly by using this product three times a day for two weeks, that is a distinct inconvenience. That is not nothing. So that is sufficient for consideration. That is a detriment. So in conclusion, the judge found that there was a contract. This was a valid offer, and it was accepted. In the conclusion, the judge has a great line, and I'll quote it. Quote, it appears to me, therefore, that the defendant must perform their promise. And if they have been so unwary as to expose themselves to a great many actions, so much the worse for them. Unquote. So basically, the court is saying that Karbalik wrote this offer. They wrote this advertisement. If they were kind of silly, if they were unwary, if they didn't really think of the consequences of this, of this action, of this advertisement, so much the worse for them. You know, that was their foolishness. But we're not going to punish the offerees, the people who accepted the offer, because of the offeror's basically uh, unwariness. Like I said earlier, go to the show notes and you can download a, a PDF of this case. And you can read it in a little bit more detail. Obviously, I'm just kind of going through the, the major themes since I don't expect that you have it in front of you. But this is a very interesting case, and it's still being studied today. It is still good law today. Let's review some of the terms we discussed in the episode. Offer, offer or, offer e, consideration, accept, acceptance, intention, infer, imply, express, nudum pactum, Puff or puffery, 
detriment, inconvenience? Did you understand all of these terms? If you need a further explanation of these terms, go to the show notes and post a comment. And I'll answer and try to give a a better definition or answer any questions you have about this case. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the podcast, give us a review and five stars, and share this with any of your friends or colleagues that might enjoy this podcast as well. Go to our website for number four, legalenglish, no spaces or dashes.com, for legalenglish.com. Check out our blog articles and available courses, and also our show notes. You can comment. This is a great way to practice and improve your legal English skills. Since this is the 10th episode, we prepared a short survey. If you could take a few minutes and answer a few questions, that would really help us improve the podcast. That's at forlegalenglish.com slash podcast survey. That's forlegalenglish.com slash podcast survey. The For Legal English podcast is adjourned. Don't miss the next docket call. <laughs>